Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is October 4th, 2017, and this is episode 220. My name is Scott Magnus. And this is Jake English. And in this episode, we're going to circle the bases once more to end the 2017 season. And we'll ask the question, are they who we thought they were? And we'll do that all after we lubricate for the show. It's time for the drink of the week jake what are you imbibing on this evening my drink of the week is um is a birdhouse pale ale one of my favorites it's a uh, beer from the brewer's art and scott put a little asterisk next to this one because this is an important beer and i'll tell you why this uh six pack of birdhouse uh well i'm gonna call it a five pack okay it's a five pack of birdhouse because one of these bad boys is going in the fridge, and this will be my baseball beer. Uh, for those of you that that are not familiar, every season at the end, I take a, a beer from from the season and I put it in the fridge, and I forget about it until opening day. And on opening day, before I head down to the ballpark, I crack open the baseball beer. It's the bridge from from one year to the next, and for the last several years, that beer has been oh so sweet. We'll see how it tastes next year. Jake, I'm going with a similar vein in terms of my beer selection tonight. I am basically paying homage to the 2017 season. Jake, I'm going with a sour saison, almost for like a sour season, basically. So it's a sour saison for the 2017 season. So it's the Chad and Jeremy of the beer world. Absolutely. Don't make me play Summer Song on you. All right. If you are interested in hearing what it is that we are drinking on a daily or weekly basis, and if you're interested in uh, in drinking along with us and letting us know what you are into, please join us on Untapped. Drink socially with us. I'm at Jake E four zero two five, and I'm at M A G N eight six zero six. And with that, let's do 140 characters or less this week on the Twitters. Uh, Jake, uh, we're going to start with this first tweet, and um, it's one more shout out to the old man. Uh, this tweet actually came from Jeff Passan, but there was a lot of folks basically talking about this um, this this kind of topic. Uh, and Jeff's tweet goes as follows: Man, this at Don Dan Connolly 2016 interview, JG Hardy at BaltimoreBaseball.com is deep, intense, and so interesting. And and Jeff picked out um, one of the darker portions of the interview, in my opinion. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit from it. At that same time, my brother was coming home from Iraq and was having a lot of more problems than I was. I was too blind and selfish to even realize anything but was going on with me. We lived together for a couple months in Tempe and didn't talk. Basically, we sat in the house, had all the blinds closed. It was like a cave. We didn't talk. We literally would sit there on the couch looking at a TV that was not turned on and go about our days like that. And then one day, I think I might have said, hey, I'm going to go sit out in the hot tub. You want to come out? And he said, sure. This is, J.J. Hardy is an incredibly emotional creature is the best way to describe it. This kind of tugging at your heartstrings in terms of everything that he went through, kind of coming through a, a shoulder issue when he was in the minor leagues, and then also dealing with a situation with his brother. These are the kind of stories that um, I personally look back on. And these are the moments that I'm going to treasure, just not just the J.J. Hardy on the field, um, but the personality, which is J.J. Hardy, um, a very deep and, I don't know, very deep and just not quite just a baseball figure, but just a human being in itself, which, you know, we fawned over him last week and, and hell, we'll fawn over him again this week. We'll do it again. J.J. <laughs> Hardy is going to be missed here in Birdland. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of our, our dear thanks, uh, Domo Arigato, Mr. Mustachio. Yes. 
Uh, this is a tweet from Brittany Giroli, who tweets at Brit underscore Giroli. Longtime trainer Richie Bansell is retiring today, 40 years in the Orioles organization, 33 with the big league team. It seems odd to think of the Orioles without Richie Bansell's being part of it. Um, and he was part of, of some good times, yep. a lot of bad times, yep. and also some more good times. Uh, I'm amazed that this did not get out to the beat writers before um, the last series is the best way to describe it. I, th- I would have figured that this would have leaked somehow, but credit, I guess, to Richie Bansell's for keeping it tight to the chest and not kind of talking about it. Um, maybe he didn't tell anybody until it was over. Maybe I think it was one of those situations where I think he wanted to not make much fanfare for it and make a big hoopla out of it. Um, I've never, never, we've never seen Richie Bansell's to really make it all about him or to anything. It's more of a, I'm in the background. And even if you think about the whole history standpoint of him being here during the streak and how much of a benefit Richie Bansell's was to Ripken during the streak and Cowell basically come out. He's gone to interviews and basically talked about how big Richie was for the Orioles organization. I don't think Richie ever wanted to make it about himself. He was just doing his job. Maybe truly he was the Iron Man for the Baltimore Orioles. Maybe so. Now, if you go on the clubhouse tour and you go down there uh, in, the, in the bowels of the stadium, there's a plaque up there for, and I'm going to get his name wrong, Ralph Salvo, maybe, mm-hmm. who was a, a, a athletic trainer for the Orioles you know, forever ago. What do you think the Orioles will do to commemorate Richie Bansells? Because I feel like with the length of time he's been with the team, I mean, 40 years for a club that only has a six-year history. Sure. Uh, they've got to find some way to honor that, don't they? I, I totally agree with you. I do think there'll be kind of some kind of ceremony or honoration in terms of for Richie Bansells. I don't know what location they'll pick, but they're going to find something to basically honor him with. This is a terrible question. Th- they do have non-players in the Orioles Hall of Fame, right? They do. Well, th- that's a clear... Clear yeah. Oriole Hall of Famer. No question about it. Um, I just think it's a question of, is it just Orioles Hall of Fame, or is it just is it something on top of that, basically, as well? And I think it'll be something on top of it as well. Agreed. I'm sure that there is going to be some kind of ceremony next year where they're going to ask Bansells to come back, and uh, probably a few former Orioles will come out and basically pay homage and basically tip their caps to them and probably give them some pretty nice gifts in the process i'd love to see some sort of presentation not presentation i'd like to see some sort of visual reminder of him in a public space in in the ballpark you know again this the 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 ralph uh in a in sure thing is is downstairs out of the public eye it would be nice to have something in the ballpark that you know we can walk by and our kids can say i got it who's that we i know what we can do all right so uh there's only one option here if we want to constantly be able to remember richie mansell's the bird needs to get a mustache. <laughs> Richie Mansell's and Alex <laughs> Trebek are are you know they 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 have parallels there. The best years were clearly the mustached years. Absolutely, uh, there were some dark times in baseball off of the Baltimore Orioles in the past. But um, I don't know what you're talking about. There was the darkest of timelines proposed on Twitter this week. This the darkest next, timeline. Yes, this comes from Eric RDT at Barstool RDT, and he asked this question: Jake, who wins a baseball game? Nine Abaldo Jimenez or nine Wade Miley's? Pain. That is awful. I would choose the nine DFAs, but I think I would win either way. <laughs> All right. This is even more absurd than what you just said. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to Britt Giroli. Uh, but frankly, the, the entire beat had this. This is a tweet from Britt, again, at Britt underscore Giroli. Duquette scoffed at a rebuild, said in the AL East, quote, you reload, end quote. This is so crazy. This is so crazy. Does <sighs> Is Dan Duquette ignorant to the fact that we, quote unquote, reloaded for 14 years in this, in this organization? Here's the thing. Like, there is a way that you talk to fans and there's a way you don't talk to fans. And we see this every year at FanFest, for example. Hang on. I'm sorry. Just That's right. Just, okay. All right. Good. Here. Thank you. And when Dan gets up onto the stage and talks to fans, he talks in a fashion that basically makes you think um, this is dismissive wanking motions that he's giving to the fans. And then Buck has a conversation and kind of eggs the fans on a little bit and eggs Dan on and plays this whole personality aspect just like he does during a press conference, basically. like So he's a heel. Uh, 
No, I, I don't think he's a heel. I think he's uh, just kind of an oblivious individual and just was like, I'm not going to give you anything to work with, but I'm going to kind of dangle a carrot in front of you and make you think that we might do something more so than we actually are. Dan Duquette, saying that sounds he's so... Like a, he's like a project manager, basically. <laughs> it sounds so... <laughs> Empty when he says that. You reload in the ALEs. Yeah. Look at what you've got in the farm system. Look at what we think your budget is. Don't tell me you're going to reload. Ugh. So, Jake, I asked you this question. What would the bots say about us? This tweet comes from Orioles Sports Talk at Sport Talk Orioles. Report. Hashtag Orioles are looking to sign at least eight starting pitchers via at Matt Kremenitzer. And, of course, this was a tweet in reference to Matt Kremenitzer making a joke tweet on his uh, profile, indicating that breaking after the Dan Duquette interview, Orioles are going to sign eight starting pitchers. And, of course, the bots on Twitter have decided to basically take this and claim it as actual news. What would the bots pick up from our feed? Because our feed is, uh, I'll politely call it eclectic. Uh, I think, number one, it's kind of difficult for a bot to take gifts and actually make some something of it. Um, I also think that bots probably have something in their coding uh, specifically to eliminate the, any tweeting about dongs after dark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do think there's probably a situation where the amount of puns that are present within the context of most of our tweets would also eliminate us from being quoted by any bot. I think the only thing that I've ever tweeted saying breaking with a colon has ended with my heart. Yes. I, I think that's just about it. Now, if we could chase the bots into into reporting a broken heart, uh, I think we might be onto something. Now, we will try next year with our tweets to reload to give the bots some ammunition. You're making me the sad clown, <laughs> Scott. You're making me the sad clown. But you know what, Scotty? I'm not ready to be really sad. Okay. I'm not quite ready. Let's let's take a deep breath. Let's listen to some tunes, Care of Black Dog Prowl. Then I'll come back and I'll tell you why I'm not ready. Scotty, the Orioles season is undeniably over. You think? You can you can look at the schedule and there are no games to be played today. And tomorrow and the next day. The season is over for us, but I'm just not ready. I'm not ready to break down what exactly happened in 2017. I'm not ready to start forecasting 2018. I mean, honestly, how long can we go on saying just get starting pitching, just get starting pitching. It, 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 that's not a whole lot of content for us, but I'm not ready. Maybe the prospect of our first losing season in six years gave me some fatigue. Actually, I mean, that's probably worth discussing. Let's stop and talk about that for a minute. Do you think that the long season and the way it ended caused some fan fatigue in general and for you personally? Absolutely, yes. I, I think we've seen... Uh, the team be out of the post season for several weeks in advance before um, we'll call it two to plus weeks um, in previous seasons. Um, but I think the particularly grueling bad baseball that we saw in September really had a lot of folks that just turned out and um, just didn't really pay attention to what was even transpiring um, and, on a day in day out basis. And I, I don't begrudge that to be honest with you. I used to be I used to follow football a lot closer than I do now. And when I did, one of the things was that when the the Ravens lost, I didn't bother to listen to sports radio for the week because I knew it was just gonna be trash, right? It was just gonna be it was just gonna make me sad. And so I would just unplug and do other things with my life until it was time for that next Sunday. And I wonder if the end of the Orioles season was the type of thing where people just unplugged and they're like, you know what? I can't. This is exhausting in its frustration. I'll be back in a few days, Orioles. If I come back and you've lost five games in a row, I'll take another breather to clear my head. Um, You know, a, a previous version of me, you know, Jake 1.0, 
would have been frustrated with fans about that and would have taken the task for not being, you know, pure, true fans. But to be honest with you, 162 games, that's okay, right? That's okay, particularly when it's pretty clear that the Orioles aren't aren't going anywhere. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's, it, it's frustrating, but again, I think the aspect is September was potentially one of the worst baseball stretches um, in Orioles history. I mean, you look at the historical context for the Baltimore Orioles, and the last time the Orioles were this bad was during 2002. Um, I'm looking at the numbers right now for the 2002 Baltimore Orioles. Um, during the month of September, they posted a 4-24 and record. They scored 82 runs, gave up 155. In comparison to the current Baltimore Orioles, who went 7-21, and including October, and they gave up 83 they scored 83 runs so a uh single additional run than the 2002 orioles and they gave up 161 runs in that period of time so in aspect the 2017 orioles and the 2002 orioles played exactly the same pretty much in my opinion um between them and i just feel like there's more talent on this 2017 club than there's the 2002 club um and it's just heartbreaking when you look at it because you're just like how could they be so bad is the best way to describe it, um, kind of going going through it all. Here's the thing about the the teams that we've seen since 2012. One of the things I've delighted in in this club was that we didn't have long losing streaks like this. Mm-hmm. When the team was bad in the past, um, you could look back at a month and realize, oh, my God, we only won four games this month. Mm-hmm. You know, and famously, 2002 is exactly the, the example, right? They, they ended the season four and 32, where you could go through a week and not have won a baseball game. And you go back and look at a month or two months and say, you know, God, we lost. We won eight games in that stretch. And that's what happened at the end of 2017. It didn't feel, and maybe it's because we were so numb to the losing by that point, but it didn't feel so acute. But you look back and you went, oh, my goodness. Like, they ended the season, what, like 4-25 and 25 or something something crazy like that. The Orioles lost so many of the games. Um, I wonder, and, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not calling anybody specifically out, but, Scott, do you think it, it got to the point where the players realized that, look, we're just not going anywhere, and they checked out? Yes. I, I honestly do. You can just look at the way certain players play and you're just like, they don't have that hustle and they don't have that mindset where they're focused on it. They are in the aspect of let's get through this and be done with it, which is concerning is the best way to describe it because it comes back to the situation. And I think I talked about this with Manny of there has to be that ability to say, we're going out there and play. Similar like in 2011, going out there and saying, we're going to go out there and basically try to upset the apple cart and play spoiler. There was nothing like that. And I think the Orioles looked at their schedule and said, there's no way for us to play spoiler and there's no way for us to get back into it. What's the point is the best way to describe it. Like, who cares if we're 500 or not? Like, that's not important to the clubhouse. It was, let's just get through the season healthy and then hopefully come back next year and do something about it. Right. Well, you know, the, the thing about the losing and, and as disappointing was, as it was, it was absolutely a return to Dark Ages baseball. I mean, it was a classic September swoon, um, which is really disappointing in a lot of ways because say what you will about the Orioles' early part of the schedule, and I will, they were terrible, right? After that first 22 games or whatever, they were, it was tough to watch, Um but say what you will about their early part of the schedule, they had positioned themselves pretty well, the Orioles, to compete by the end of September. And the end of September, they were in very serious shape to to compete for a playoff spot. And that may have been because they, they managed to pull out of the doldrums. It, it could have been because the rest of the AL was, was kind of crap, whatever. They were in the hunt, and then they just crapped the bed. And that was really, I think, the most dis- disappointing thing because coming into September, they had every chance of, of playing those meaningful games that we had waited for for so long and then just yuck. Yeah, it's an interesting scenario because, you know, playing yuck and then the lack of motivation, it does raise the question to a certain regard about, you know, where is that clubhouse leadership that we have seen in the past? 
And to a certain regard, what is Buck Showalter currently doing and how is he getting players ready to basically go out there and play on a daily basis? Well, I tell you what, let's let's do this in an around the bases format. Let's let's call that uh, September Swoon first base. Okay. All right. So let's round first, let's head to second. Let's talk a little bit about Buck Showalter. There was some talk. I saw, you know, some discussion, and I got to be honest, most of it was you on Twitter responding to other people. But there was some talk about the prospect of Buck Showalter leaving the Orioles. Um, First, fill me in. What was the whole discussion about the Showalter to Philadelphia thing? So there was a report indicating, and it wasn't from an official source, that if the Philadelphia Phillies were looking for a new manager, Buck Showalter could be a potential name because of Andy McPhail being a GM of the Phillies at the time. So Buck Showalter and Andy McPhail obviously have a relationship. Would it be possible for Buck Showalter potentially to come to Philadelphia, even though the, under the caveat is Buck Showalter currently has a contract with the Baltimore Orioles? Um, why would he move and why would he want to move to the Phillies, even if he wanted to? So this is not a, a Dan Duquette situation. But I think it's interesting because, you know, if the Orioles did want to make that move, and I don't think they do want to make that move, it is a question of, if that was the case, the question would be, how much would the Phillies be willing to give up to get Buck Showalter? And when the Dan Duquette situation happened in Toronto, folks were very quick to say, okay, let's get rid of Dan Duquette and let's see if we can get you know some kind of prospect in return. Yet when this report came out, there was no conversation of, hmm, I wonder what Buck would be worthwhile to us to get rid of now um, in, in order to basically maybe get a prospect to help rebuild the farm system. It wasn't even a conversation. It was... We're not touching Buck Showalter. He's the sacred cow. And the only way that we've been winning since 2012 has been because of Buck Showalter, which is questionable is the best way to describe it. Um, And we can kind of get into the aspect of how much a role does a manager have? A lot of people on Twitter believe that the only reason um, we have been successful is because Buck Showalter is our manager. If we would have had a manager like a Lee Mazzilli or Sam Palazzo or Dave Tremblay, um, the Orioles would not have been successful through 2012 um, in, in the same regard. Yeah, I, I and I here's the thing. I, I think that the manager clearly has a role, right? And I think that the the manager does equate to wins and losses. I just think that the impact that a manager has over the course of the season is limited to a very few number of wins and losses, right? Like the swing of wins and losses that a, a manager can actually impact, I would argue is less than 10 games, right? Yes. It may be as few as five or fewer games, right? right? Games that the, the manager and his decision and his emotional impact and his tone set. I, I really feel like we're talking about, you know, very small percentage points of the, the major league baseball season. I mean, coming back to the 2002 Baltimore Orioles, I mean, if you're telling me that Buck Showalter could have taken a team like Melvin Mora, Rodrigo Lopez, Tony Batista, Buddy Groom, and Jerry Hairston and made them into a playoff team, hey, I'd like to be drinking whatever you're drinking. But it is a situation of if you look at the team in 2012, you had a lot of talent on the team. And it was a situation of, Everyone was starting to hit that peak point, and it really came back to, and even in 2012, you look at 2012, and it was only when Manny came up that the team basically turned into being a really, really good team. Otherwise, you look at beforehand, and they're like, yeah, they're they're floating around 500, which is what typical Orioles teams had always done, and then they fell off at the very end of this season. Do you think it's fair to say that a good manager mm. can take a good team and have more of a positive impact than a okay or a bad manager can have over a good team. I, I think it still comes back to the point of no matter what the manager is, I think the manager doesn't make that significant impact. I think, you know, you said it, it can impact games, but I think in the whole, it may give you an additional one to two wins per season. Right. But what I'm saying is, do you, do you think my, my position is this, a, a, a good team with an average to bad manager mm-hmm. is not going to have as many wins as a good team with a good manager and an an okay team with a average manager is not going to have as many wins as an okay team with a good manager. Sure. I, I think that the, you know, the, the net effect is small, 
but there is some some there, win with a with a better manager. There is some kind of deviation, but again, it comes back to ultimate talent ultimately determines wins. It comes back to look for the example of the Royals. I mm-hmm. do not consider Ned Yost to be an exceptional manager, Agreed. Yeah. but Ned Yost basically was able to take the Royals and lead them to multiple seasons where they did do very well, including this season. I mean, you look at what the Royals did even after trading away a lot of folks this offseason, and he did perfectly fine because you had a lot of talent still on that ball club. And you counted them dead at a certain point in the season, and they came roaring right back. Correct. Um, and, and and similarly, like you can have a really good coach like a um, Bruce Bochy, for example, mm-hmm. with the San Francisco Giants, and then you look at the talent level on the Giants, and it's not the same talent level that had been there previously for several World Series, and you say – there's a reason they only won 60 games this season is because the talent level was not there on that team in order to do it. You can be as good of a manager as possible, but again, you're absolutely right. There is a certain tier structure here, and the Orioles came into this basically forecasted on a statistical basis of only getting 72 wins, and the Orioles managed to get 75 wins this season. Is it possible that Buck Walter can add additional, you know, we'll call it three to five wins? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to him. That's possible. But more than likely, Buck's at probably adding more like two to three wins, and then the rest of it is just normal distribution in terms of the luck dragon that's going on on, on, on a season basis. I'm with you. You you mentioned Ned Yost, and a lot of people say this is this is one of the the things that, that people say and just assume it's true that Ned Yost was exactly the manager that the Royals needed. Right? Mm-hmm. That his his managerial style matched that club, and that's part of the magic that made that team work. I would I would argue dark magic but let me ask you this sure buck showalter yeah he's got he's got positive qualities he's got negative qualities sure what do you think he brings specifically to the orioles specifically to the way that this roster is constructed and what do you think what do you think plays in in their favor and what do you think may hold them back about buck buck is a player's manager buck basically will basically make players think they can do anything with a very limited talent set. So Buck is not going to do well with a team of all superstars. He's going to basically take those fringe-type players like a Steve Pierce or Tim Beckham and basically try to build them into something that they are not. Um, but I don't consider him to be one of those managers that would do very well with a really, really highly talented team, um, such as the Red Sox or the Yankees. I think he wants individuals that are willing to listen to him and really get behind the message that he is preaching. And that's what I think he can do. And I think if you look at the 2012 Orioles, when he came, when, and even in 2010 and 2011 when he came in, he crafted that roster specifically through the whole aspect of getting players to buy into the message and really believe that they could do something that no one else thought they could do. Yeah, and, and you look at some of the players that were kind of on the fringes that ended up being really important parts of the club. I mean, Adam Jones was was known that he sure. was going to be a superstar, right? But I, I was going to be a good player. We knew Adam Jones was going to be a good player. I don't know if anyone thought that he was going to be a, a perennial all-star candidate. But I think Adam Jones is one of those players that, with a different manager, he may have been a mediocre one-to-two war player. And with Buck Showalter... I think maybe he's a little bit better than he actually is. Here's the player I think that that benefited the most from Buck Showalter. Brian Mattis. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> Chris Davis, right? Chris Davis was a fringe guy to make the Major League sure. roster in Texas. He was an all-or-nothing swinger. I think that— Oh, that, he is an all-or-nothing swinger, so— I, I think that the reason he had success at the Major League level was because he clicked with the Buck Showalter message. Sure. I, I, I can buy that. There's— there's several folks on this club that you can look at and understand the aspect of, you know, grab my Harvard hat, grab my pail, mm-hmm. go to work on a day in a day out basis. You talked about Steve Pierce. I mean, Darren O'Day is another one, you right? Know, an out and out guy who suddenly became one of the highest paid uh, relievers in the game for a couple of weeks. Sure. I, I think that he has that impact on, on those guys. And, and I think that that actually probably pairs well with the Duquette experience. Sure. Which is, you know, find a, find a guy that can be effective. You know, I'm always, I'm always talking about Chaz Rowe, how he had that, you know, most effective slider in baseball for two weeks. But you find these guys that have the ability to, to be a flash in the pan. Brad Brock would be a good example yeah. too of someone that, again, was nothing basically. And then it's the aspect of, Hey, Buck. You know, see if you can make your, make your magic work with him. But you're absolutely right. Like Buck takes those, you know, average to mediocre players and basically says, let's see if we can get them to be marginally better and take a step to the right. And good managers are able to do that. 
but I don't think it's as dynamic as some people think that it's basically, you know, the difference between, you know, a terrible team and a really good team. What about them holds the Orioles back? What's the negative impact? Uh, again, being a player's manager, just the whole stubbornness of the whole matter, not willing to basically try new things, um, not willing to sit players when they shouldn't be playing um, is a big aspect. Um, again, you look at the Rockies lineup tonight for the NL wildcard. Uh, Ian Desmond is not in the lineup, even though he's being paid $70 million because he's just not performing right now. So it's that aspect of saying, if a player is not performing, I have no issue just sitting him for long periods of time and playing another player Instead, you see Buck normally very stubbornly going through it for multiple weeks and then eventually coming to that caveat of, well, let's try it for one day just to see what happens and then going right back to the to the wheelbarrow of, let's go ahead and put it back into the order. It it didn't show up this way at the end, but Buck Showalter made the statement, J.J. Hardy is still the starting shortstop for the Baltimore Warriors. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The fact that Adam Jones played more than 150 games this season. This is exactly what you're talking about. And, and you know, to to go further with that point, Adam Jones ran out of steam. You mm-hmm. know, he was hurt because he played too much. Um, and that's clearly not good for the team. Uh, and, and you look at his inability to to do anything else. In In past years, I've said to myself, oh, well, he's doing that because he doesn't have anybody else. But that's clearly not the case. Sure. You know, the the Orioles didn't use Ryan Flaherty basically at all after he came back. And this is the super sub that you're paying a million and a half dollars. Sure. So I, I I believe me, I'm not blind to the Buck Showalter spots. I will say though, they're better off within them without him. And, and totally, clearly, totally agree. I think the positives outweigh the negatives. And I think for the given team construction that you have. And also working with the Duquette aspect, it's this is probably the best manager that you could be picking right now to basically lead this team. Whenever we are ready to talk about moving forward, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are about who the right person is to steer the ship through a <clears throat> reload. reload. But yeah, but I'm not ready. Yeah, uh, we talked about Buck. Let's talk a little bit about the coaches. Uh, Chris Davis came out today saying that particularly. Uh, Scott Coolball, but all the coaches should keep their jobs for next year. What effects really do, do the coaches have? I, I'm i pretty ambivalent about hitting coaches and pitching coaches. I feel like at the major league level, the players really decide how they perform. And it takes an especially exceptional pitching or hitting coach sure. to move the needle. Sure. Whereas most of them are just interchangeable Take them or leave them. So I know a lot of people have wanted to basically say the Orioles need to go out and basically potentially go get new coaches uh, based off, especially with their inefficiency with their pitching. But I think the biggest aspect that I've always raised grief with with the Baltimore Orioles is taking their supporting coaches, such as the hitting coach, the pitching coach, and basically only offering them one-year deals every single year. And it would seem to me that as a team and an organization – giving these coaches long-term deals in the same line that they do Buck Showalter would certainly yield an aspect of continuity going forward. And the players would know. Uh, We also have a situation where if you're going year to year, every single year, you also get into a situation like we saw in this past off season with Dave Wallace, where Dave Wallace said, I don't know what the future holds and I don't like the way things are going on with Brady so I'm going to move on to another position to basically preserve my career because I can't trust going year to year and year. It's the same aspect of if we in real life were on a contract basis and you're like, all right, my contract's coming up and I'm not sure if I'm going to have a job. It's a very stressful situation to go through. And if you can avoid that and better put yourself in a position for you and your family, of course, you're going to go ahead and take that opportunity. Sure. But beyond that, uh, you know, McDowell, people sure. have been calling for McDowell's head this season. Right. I don't know exactly how he was expected to make chicken salad out of this pitching staff. Sure. I mean, you look at the pitching staff and you had Abaldo Jimenez, which, again, you just have to kind of hope that Abaldo is going to be good. Um, but it's this aspect of— Or just not historically terrible. We knew coming into the season that Abaldo had a very good chance of going back to really bad Abaldo. I mean, this is a pitcher that has been pulled out of the rotation multiple times at this point. Um, and then you had Chris Tillman, who— was really good last year, but it was a major question mark coming into the season. I kept preaching on it last offseason in terms of he does not have the velocity 
in that wild card game, something's up with him, and the Orioles never wanted to admit it. Uh, and then you had Wade Miley, who I actually thought was going to have a better season than he did. Um, but Wade Miley, Gaston was going to be at best a fourth or fifth starter. Um, and he certainly was worse than that. But again, you can't go into the season with even two and a half starters. You need to be going into a season with at least five serviceable starters and then two or three options. And the Orioles didn't have two or three additional options on top of the five pitchers they went to the season with. What if we go out and get eight? Uh, Matt Kremenitzer would agree that would probably be a decent <laughs> move, but I don't know how we're going to do that with only $50 million. Look, I'm not defending McDowell. I, I don't know anything about him as a pitching coach. All I'm saying is this. He had nothing to work with. Right. Even Gosman had a really terrible first half, mm-hmm. and and everybody else was awful. Mm-hmm. was Mattis-esque. Um, Scott Coolball, all right? I, I don't know what a what a hitting coach brings to to the the offense, but you look at some of the disappointing performances we've had. You know, is Chris Davis bad because the hitting coach isn't good enough? You know, it is the fact that uh, Mark Trumbo didn't equal his career year that got him that contract. Scott Coolball's fault, right? You know, I just don't think so, right? I mean, it's even the aspect of like Manny Machado has also been very uh, right. vocal and said, Scott Kubal has really helped me basically improve as a hitter. But then you look at Machado's numbers this year and you're just like, well, did you get better? But I think you look in the hole and you say, what benefit does it to really get another hitting coach in here and basically upset the player base? Or do you really want to continue the message and continuity for the players and just say, if you guys are happy and you think you can improve, by all means, go ahead and do so because ultimately it's going to be you guys on the line next year when your contracts all come up. And I got to be honest, again, I'm not saying one way or the other for Scott Kubal. I just feel like there needs to be more personal accountability from a fan perspective. Sure. Like we, we need to place that blame on the shoulder of the players. Absolutely. Right. Because those are the guys. Kubal could be preaching all the right things. It's the player's job to put it onto the field. Right. If, you know, for the rest of the coaches, I really I don't have any complaints. I mean, Bobby Dickerson, who coaches third and coaches the infield. First of all, I mean, the players to a, to a man praise Bobby Dickerson with the work he does with those infielders, sure. and I think that speaks for itself. Specifically, the catchers also have been really vocal in saying how good Bobby Dickerson is in terms of uh, positioning and, and and the whole aspect of uh, foot movement in terms of their pop-up times, in terms of minimizing base stealing on the bases as well. So um, as much as we give the windmill a hard time for sometimes setting players, um, I, I can't fault him too much. And then what's cooking with Kirby? I mean, defensive positioning just to manage the aspect of an outfield with Trey Mancini and Mark Trumbo. I mean, what else are you going to be trying to do out there? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, I think every... Every uh, praise needs to go to Mancini for not being a, a total failure in the outfield, right? Sure. But he also had, you know, Kirby to work with. And and also, you know, we're not complaining anymore about Adam Jones in center field, mm. right? And I think something is to be said for that, too. One, because Adam Jones has in many ways checked his ego at the door. And two, you know, the partnership with Kirby, I'm sure, doesn't hurt for that offensive uh or i'm sorry that outfield uh placement let me ask you about this uh john russell Mm -hmm. bench coach and catching coach uh he was you know deemed very important in the development of matt weeders now we had caleb joseph and and castillo we've got chancisco coming up in the wings sure is it important to have a guy like john russell who's so well respected with the catchers if our quote-unquote top prospect is coming up as a catcher. Yes. Here's the other thing about, and I agree with you, here's the other thing about Russell. Russell's a manager who hasn't gotten a job yet, and that set of skills is good to have around. Yes. I mean, and I'm not just talking about when Buck gets tossed. I mean, this is a guy who has all of the baseball, you know, knowledge crammed into him, and he's available to the Orioles players. I think it is absolutely excellent for the Orioles to have basically a second manager in the dugout. Yeah, he's a mid manager. He, it's he's the individual between Buck and the players that 
the the players can go to and just kind of raise gripes sure. without going directly to Buck and and inconvenience him in the in the topics. But from a quality standpoint, I think he could he could be one of the thirty. Absolutely, totally agree. All right, so that is the second base. Second base, of course, is the absence of uh, coaching. Let's move on to third base, and I think the uh, thing, uh, Jake, uh, I'm sorry, going to stop you here. Okay, um, the Orioles don't get runners past second base. So once they get to second base, the inning normally ends. So um, I'm going to basically have to stop you right there. Scott, this is, this is around the bases. We we go around the bases every time. Correct. But in September, um, we didn't go around the bases. We're going to actually go ahead and um, move to uh, a commercial segment, and we're going to do a sad walk back to the dugout. So, Jake, uh, is there anything that you wanted to say during your sad walk back to the dugout? What? I don't I don't get to go to third base? No. I don't get to go home. No, Sarah has told me that is not the case. So I, all right. So my sad walk back to the dugout. If I mean, if I, have, I guess if I have to, um, the wild card game. Yes. Uh, I didn't watch the AL wild card game. Did you watch the AL wild card game? I did. Why? I find the wild card games to be some of the more entertaining baseball during the entire playoffs. I do too. I I really think that the MLB has, and forgive me, hit it out of the park with the wild card game. It, it is compelling because I think that that format, loser goes home, captures the essence of what what exciting postseason should be. Again, I go back to you know a few years, more than a few years ago at this point, the Twins and maybe the White Sox had to play a game one sixty three, and that was like. So exciting. Yeah. And I think that that has come down. This wild card format is fantastic. And we've seen it with with the Athletics and the uh, Kansas City Royals played that really entertaining yep. game. This was a really entertaining game. I, I'm a fan of the wild card format. Um, but, Scotty, I will not watch the uh, watch the Yankees in the postseason. I just I can't do it. Uh, what can I say? It's the aspect of I really like to see those one games – when it's going to be, I guess it's going to be the Indians versus the with the Yankees. I don't know how many games I'll actually watch, but I will probably tune in occasionally just to see it because it still is baseball, and there's still a sense of drama and intrigue that makes me want to attend and watch. It's really funny because during the dark ages, I wouldn't watch the MLB playoffs because I was so pissed about Great. the fact Same. that that the Orioles just had no chance of getting there, and yep. it was just stacked so that the Yankees and the Red Sox could run the table. I was so irritated. Yep. But now that the Orioles have been better, I, I do watch the MLB playoffs. I just, again, maybe it was part of the fan fatigue. Sure. I just couldn't do it for the AL Wild Card. If you turn in and just watch the aspect of the drama and, and, and basically not hold a grudge or a rooting interest for either one and just enjoy the game, it's quite pleasurable. It's almost easier to just watch baseball than it to be, is to be an Orioles fan. All right. Second mention of the NFL in this podcast. I'm really sorry. But I think that um, one of the ways that the NFL at least used to be successful is that they got fans to sit down and watch games that they weren't emotionally invested in. Sure. And the cool thing about watching the MLB playoffs is that you can watch high quality baseball played at for the highest stakes when you don't have the agonizing sick to my stomach feeling about either one. Correct. That's uh that's an attractive uh, that's an attractive prospect. Absolutely. And in the meantime, you know, since we're not actually in the game, we can just hang out in the bullpen and wait for Buckshaw Walter to call us in. So you're really not going to let me go to third base? No. I prepared third and and home plate. No. But I what I'm going to do, Jake, is I'm going to um have you make some decisions now and tell me who uh you think is for real and who is for fake. And let's go ahead and do that in our next segment called They Are who we thought they were. All right, Jake, so I know you don't want to recap too much about the season, and honestly, neither do I. I think it's time for us to kind of just take a little bit of a break, not so much in mourning, more so just kind of wanting to let it digest a little bit. But Jake, I want you to get kind of an instant gut feel for me, and we've talked about this in previous shows, and uh, I want you to tell me um, 
out of these two names, um, and we're going to go through a bunch of them, which ones you think is real and which one is fake? So we're going to call the segments they are who we thought they were. So Jake, out of Manny Machado mm-hmm. or Jonathan Scope, which one did you do you think had a season more likely um, to be repeated in the future for their, their career? Oh, man. So Manny, Mach- Manny Machado, who had, I mean, a down year. Absolutely a down, a down year. year. Uh, and I think it was something like 94 weighted runs created plus in the first half, but only 114 weighted runs created plus in the second half. Right. And then Jonathan Scope, who just played out of his mind. Yep. I don't think either one of those is going to happen again. I, I'll I'll say this. I think it is more likely for Jonathan Scope to have a surprisingly good year than it is more likely for Manny Machado to have a surprisingly disappointing year. So whereas neither extreme I think will happen again, I think Jonathan Scope is who I thought he was. Okay, so you think Jonathan Scope is going to put up a similar season to the one he did this past season? I I think it is more likely that Jonathan Scope will put up another really great season like he did this year than it is likely that Manny Machado will have a 100 weighted runs created plus offensive year. Okay, okay. Uh, let me throw one more at you. Okay. And this is kind of a uh, surprise in the Orioles roster. Mm-hmm. Trey Mancini or Tim Beckham? Oh, man. It's, uh, you suck at this. This, I, was, I, this got, was supposed to be easy. I've got an easy. This one's easy for me in terms of which one it's going to be. So, again, I was pleasantly surprised by Trey Mancini. However, I'm going to say that Tim Beckham is who I thought he was. And I don't want to sound too much like Dan Duquette, who loves his former first-round draft picks here, but I've seen flashes from Tim Beckham against the Orioles <laughs> in those 19 games that they've played every year, where I think that it is more likely that Tim Beckham will play not out of his mind the way he did when he got to the Orioles, but I think that Tim Beckham will be a change-of-scenery guy who is a successful Major League starter at shortstop for the Orioles. I think that is more likely than Trey Mancini putting together another season where people talk about him as if he is a candidate for AL Rookie of the Year. I I understand where you're coming from. I I just look at Trey Mancini and I say, he had a nice season, but is it really as nice as people think it was? Like There were people that were trying to compare Trey Mancini to Aaron Judge, which was absolutely silly, so that's what I describe it. But you look at Trey Mancini's like OPS plus number, and it's 120. I could easily see Trey Mancini putting up Steve Pierce-like numbers occasionally like that, where it's like 104 one season, 120 one season, and another 104, and being, again, this above-average player, but not great player. And I look at uh, you know Trey Mancini's overall statistics for the entire year, and I think he had like a 1.7 F war, which, again, is it's good, but it's not great. And I guess the question is, I think Trey Mancini basically has kind of been is going to be what he what we what came out this season where he's going to be a one to two war player, but he's never going to be that player like a Jonathan Scope or an Adam Jones mm-hmm. going to be able to post that three to four F four season. Even a Chris Davis who has posted some really great seasons, I don't think Trey Mancini is ever going to have that gangbuster season. Um, I think this will probably be pretty much right where he ends up for the next two or three years, and then. I think he's going to sink like a stone. Isn't that good enough? Yes, it is, especially for what you're paying him. There's no question that is perfectly uh, acceptable. Um, I think and it, uh, you look at Tim Beckham, for example, when he came to the Baltimore Orioles, he posted a 131 OPS plus, and then comparison to his career, which is a, at 105. I can't see Tim Beckham being that good um, for the Baltimore Orioles going forward. I think he's going to be, again, a slightly above average player who, again, you're not paying a lot of money for. So I think that's a positive. I mean, you need to get back in the situation where you're paying players that are above average and you're not paying them much money, um, especially if you're going to try to go out and get additional pitching and you're also going to try to Eight go of out, them. Right. And also try to go out and get Manny Machado in future seasons as well. So um, I, I think okay players is okay. I just think that Tim Beckham. Um, overachieved compared to Trey Mancini in terms of overall performance. But you think they both overachieved? Yes, I think they both overachieved. I just think that Tim Beckham overachieved even more so than Trey Mancini. And I think Trey Mancini 
could be much more of that one to two F4 player going forward, or Tim Beckham could be league average to maybe two war for another season, but it's not going to be much more than that. Here's the crazy thing. Sure. Even though I disagree with you, I hope you're right. Yeah. Can I, can I play two? Absolutely. All right, Scotty, I need you to decide which guy had the, had the year that is more likely to be repeated. Chris Davis or Mark Trumbo? Uh, can I go with all of the above? <laughs> no. I guess that's not an option. It is an either or scenario. So I'm going to go with... I'm going to have to go with Mark Trumbo, actually, because I think Mark Trumbo was a flash in the pan. as the best way it was. And I think it was a situation where... We saw this great season from Mark Trimble last season, and we said, great, if we can get that similar performance, it's a bargain for us to go and sign him. But we've seen Mark Trumbo in other locations put up some absolutely horrible numbers, and Mark Trumbo put up those equally horrible numbers this season. And I, I, I think we should just get used to it is the best way to describe it. Um, and I think Chris Davis has the ability, and we've seen this before in other seasons, to come back and really have a strong season. You're never going to get him to a situation where he's not going to strike out a ton. He's always going to strike out a ton. But I think we could get into a situation where um, the walk rate could go back up again. He could start getting more aggressive with some of the hitting, especially for working you with the offseason. Moving the bat. Yeah. And I also come back to, I do really like what I heard from Chris Davis in this past week where he basically came out and asked to talk to the beat writers and specifically said, I had a terrible season and I'm going to do as much as possible this offseason to get better um, than I was this season. And we've seen Chris Davis be able to do that, um, not just for one season, but for multiple seasons. But he definitely is a roller coaster ride in terms of this. And unfortunately, we're on the downward end of it. It's a question of can Chris Davis rebound and have at least one, hopefully two more seasons for the rest of his contract where he actually is much better than what we're currently paying him. And I think it's possible. He'll never be worth that contract. But I think that it is possible that we'll get a couple of good seasons out of Chris Davis. And, and I think if we reset our expectations, we can be pleasantly surprised, right? I'm not saying we have to bottom out our expectations, but we need to look at Chris Davis and we need to say, Chris Davis is being paid as if he's going to have eight or seven seasons in that contract like 2013. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So what can we expect from Chris Davis? Uh, I think it's possible. Here's another one, Scotty. Okay. Who was who we thought they were between Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gosman? I think Dylan Bundy is pretty much exactly who we thought he was going to be coming out of this season, where it's he shows some flashes of brilliance, and then he comes out and lays some really big stinkers. But I think you look at Dylan Bundy and you say – he could be a really nice number two or number three starter. And I think it's probably more of a number two starter. And I look at Dylan Bundy and I look at the rest of the AL East and I say, yep, he's probably potentially a top 30 starter. Is he a top 15 starter? No. But if he's a top 30 starter, I'll take that. Like you don't have to be the best, but you have to have at least a few top 45 starters in order to make it worthwhile. Um, and, and I consider, you know, Dylan Bundy to be not that bad is the best way to describe it. Not great, not an ace, not elite, but good enough. Are you worried about his durability next year? I think it's always a question, but in all honesty, he got through a whole season. Did he? He did. did he get through a full season? He did. His he, his innings were drastically reduced in the second half. He got through 170 innings. That's pretty decent. I mean... I don't know. I don't think 170 is ticker tape parade territory, is it? it I think it's darn good is the best way to describe it. I mean, you look at, you look at a, a pitcher like Chris Sale. Chris Sale had 214 innings pitch. Corey Kluber had 203 pitches, uh, two innings pitch. Chris Archer, 201. Marcus Stroman, 201. So, yes, those top pitchers are going 200. But I don't consider it to be 170 to be that far off. I mean, I'm looking at other people. Pa- Drew Pomeranz, 173. Uh, uh, I'm looking at 
Masahiro Tanaka, 178. Uh, Marco Estrada, 186. I mean, these are all pitchers that are right in the ballpark, which what I would consider to be a Dylan Bundy. Sure, but wouldn't isn't it true that he would have gotten closer to 200 innings if he hadn't been sent out for that ninth inning? No, but that's, <laughs> that's okay. But I mean, you look at Dylan Bundy in the AL alone this season, and Dylan Bundy on an F war basis uh, was the 14th best pitcher in the American League. I'm, I'll take that any day. I want him to be good. I'm just, I'm worried about him. Let, let's look at the other side of that coin. Sure. Kevin Gosman. I almost feel like Kevin Gosman could be his own comparison. Yep. Do you think that first half Kevin Gosman or second half Kevin Gosman is more likely to be the guy that we get in 2018? I think second half Kevin Gosman is what we're going to get more of actually in 2018. And it's not just me being optimistic. I think it comes back to, we talked about at the beginning of the season, the splitter disappeared, and we had never seen that happen before for the season. And this comes back to the conversation we had about continuity. I do really think that Dave Wallace leaving had an impact on him from a continuity standpoint. And I think Kevin Gossman finally got that feel for that pitch back. And when he did, he was pretty good for the second half. Not He didn't have all great games, but on the whole... Kevin Gossman was pretty darn good during the second half of the season. So listening to the radio broadcast, Joe Angel was talking about in, in Kevin Gossman's last start about moving away from the splitter and using the changeup more. Okay. Or or throwing the splitter in a different fashion so that the the break was not as drastic and it looked more like a changeup to the hitters than the splitter than it had been before. He clearly made an adjustment with his off-speed repertoire, and you, you can call it a change. Yep. You can call it a splitter. He calls it, he calls it both ways. So, right. <laughs> Whatever you want to say, he made an adjustment, and you saw that pay off. I haven't seen from Kevin Gosman in, in his career yet that when he gets into trouble from a game-to-game basis that he can dig his way out with adjustments. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a maturity thing. Maybe that's a, he's not the ace that we thought he was going to be coming out of college. I hope that next year he's the second half Kevin Gosman. I'm just not going to hang my hat on it. I I agree with you. I think that it's more likely that Dylan Bundy is the more effective starter next year. Again, for as bad of a first half as Kevin Gosman had, and he certainly had a terrible first half. He still posted a 2.5 F4 for the entire season, good for 16th in the American League. So you had Dylan Bundy finish 14th. You had Kevin Gossman finish 16th in the American League. With a few decent other starting pitchers in there, you can have a pretty decent on. I'm looking right now at Alex Cobb, who was 17th in the American League last season. If you say, give me Dylan Bundy, give me Kevin Gossman, and give me Alex Cobb, and you've got the 14th, 16th, and 17th best pitcher in the American League. Great. Awesome. Let's make it happen. And, you know, with with a team, I think, that will largely be the same offensively next year, we, we said it at the beginning, if the pitching can be not weapons-grade terrible, the team's got a chance. Absolutely. I think, and you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but if they can bring in a starting rotation that can be good, not exceptional, but good. I think they're in a much stronger position. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Do you have any other they are who we thought they were uh, misery spots for me? Hmm. Let me think about this. I got one more for you, and then we can close this out. Who is more like they who we thought they were? Brad Brock or Zach Britton? Okay. Um, the way that's worded. Brad Brock. Yes. A- and I say that because I think you jinxed him by praising him in the bevies. This, it was this all season. my fault. Absolutely. No question um, about it. But I I don't think that Brad Brock is as good as he was in previous years. And I think that we are more likely to see Brad Brock falter out of the eighth inning, seventh inning, high leverage positions. That having been said... With Zach Britton, we're never going to see the 2014 dominance, the 2016 dominance that we saw ever again. Nope. But I don't think that that will stop Zach Britton from being an effective closer in this league. 
What was interesting about Zach Burton this year is you look at his ground ball rate still sky high, but the command was all off. And that was seen both in terms of the walk rate skyrocketing, but also the strikeout rate dropped significantly. So we went from being around 8.5 down to 6.3 this year. I think it's a situation where Zach Burton can get it turned around pretty quickly um, and maybe not be that dominant pitcher like he was in 2014, 2016, but get back to actually having some command of his pitches. And if he can get some command back for his pitches, I think it's going to be a situation where he can be a very effective relief pitcher. Maybe not, you know, the best relief pitcher in all of Major League Baseball, but could easily be a top 10 relief pitcher in Major League Baseball. He clearly wasn't healthy at first in his arm and then in his leg. And I'm not making excuses for the guy, but I think that what we saw is is off of what we will see. And he he clearly peaked. He's he's clearly on the downside of that peak, but I don't think the drop off is quite as drastic as what we experienced this year. Possible. I think it's one of the situations though we've got to be careful to blame health concerns because you mentioned the arm, his velocity was still there. It's not like the velocity just sure. disappeared. Uh, if we're going to start blaming the knee on control issues, possible. But again, it comes back to the Orioles mentioned that this has been bothering him for years. Whether or not that's true or not is a whole other matter. But I, I still think this comes back to um, continuity. Dave Wallace was critical with Zach Britton. Dave Wallace is who what, who made Zach Britton into who he, who he was. Hey, go back to our string theory episode. Right, exactly. I mean, I think to a certain regard the pitchers were still trying to figure out what was going on. And I think Zach Burton may have been um, one of the most impacted players from Dave Wallace leaving. And Zach was very adamant when Dave Wallace left about how big of a loss it was for the world's organization. Um, so I, I think with an off season under it and for him to look at what he was doing and something like that, I do think Zach Burton will get back to um, potentially being a very good starter. Probably not the dominant relief pitcher that we want him to be though. Fair enough. All right. I like that. Well, Scotty, they are who we thought they were. We came into the season saying that the starting pitching would need to be solid enough in order for them to compete, and they weren't. Let's leave it there. I want to go off, look at some good, some bad, and some ugly. It's time again. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is the segment in which we tell you which Orioles this week made you proud to be an Orioles fan, which made you embarrassed to be an Orioles fan, and and what was in between. I'm going to go ahead as usual and get started, and I'm going to get started with my good. And Scotty, this week, for my good. Yep, that was pretty much the same one I had. And you know who was bad this week? That's crazy, because usually we have two separate players, but I had the same thing. Let me see if there's this. Scotty, this was my ugly. All the above? That's right. I mean, listen, this is an unprecedented territory for Bird's Eye View, but folks, Orioles baseball was completely ugly this past week. There was no redeeming quality of it. There was no uh, grand aspect which you could hang your hat on to, folks. This may have been the most difficult time for us at Bird's Eye View to actually come up with a show. So as part of it, uh, we spared you singing in order to basically prevent you from tuning out from this show. But folks, for the first and we hope the last time in Bird's Eye View history, Orioles baseball, you are ugly. It was D, all of the above. Yes. Uh, With that, why don't we go ahead and blow the save? Scotty, I'm going to blow the save real quick with um, with some current events, but with a twist. We've occasionally in this space talked about current events, things that are just so large and all-consuming that they can't escape even the focus of a baseball-centric podcast like Bird's Eye View. I don't want to talk about any one thing in in, in particular. What I want to talk about is tribalism. As we go through this world, tribalism is one of our greatest enemies. 
And what I mean by that is rather than thinking critically about what is going on, we think about which side we're on. And you know what? That's okay. When you're looking at a Yankees-Red Sox game, whose side are you on? Which part of the great rivalry, the great divide are you on? Get your jollies with tribalism out of sports. Do not do it in life. When you listen to the news and you're outraged, think to yourself, is this in the news because someone wants me to be outraged? When you think about an issue that can't move forward, is it because the the entirety of our country will not take a step out of their tribal alliances to get something done? So, Scott, I apologize for bringing in, once again, current events to this podcast, which should be a lack of insight and baseless opinion, which should be escapism. But much like the Orioles' 2017 season, these are dark times. Yeah, it is dark times. I guess the only way I can respond to the whole aspect of tribalism is with this. If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. That one was for Jovio J. Scotty, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And that is our show. Remember, you can find this and our entire catalog of indispensable episodes at Bird's Eye View Baltimore. Bird's Eye View is a proud member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. You can find this show on baltimoresportsreport.com slash network and also on baseballtalkradio.com, the home of great baseball talk. Bird's Eye View is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. We'd appreciate a rating and review. Please review this show. It helps establish what we call social proof about the show and encourages new listeners to check it out. Hey, engage with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. The best way to get a hold of us is on Twitter, where we tweet at BirdseyeViewBAL. And with that, Baltimore and beyond, I will bid you all a fond adieu-adieu. Baltimore, we will talk to you in a few weeks. Good night. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. That's right. We are not regular in the off-season, are we? No, we are somewhat constipated. Not enough fiber in the off-season diet. Absolutely. We need to reload, as it were. It's over. Go home. Go.